Paris, hi. Hello. I like being in like the sort of screening room vibe you've got going on there. This used to be actually a club called Club Paris. I renovated the house and now it's a screening room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today is a, a super interesting one because Paris Hilton is with us. And This woman created the influencer movement, truly. Before Twitter, before Instagram, before any of it, there was Paris Hilton. And I don't think it's overstating what that has wrought, both good, bad, and indifferent. Um, Whenever you're at the beginning of a movement, there's going to be a lot to talk about. And I also go way back with her family. So this will be super fun. Let's go to Paris. We don't even have to get on the Concorde. We don't even have to travel. We're going to Paris. Why did you shut the club down? Because I got married and grew up. <laughs> Darn it. It happens to the best of us. So you may have had the longest, from what I can tell, uh, honeymoon that I've ever heard of. Give me the itinerary again. It was almost two months. So it was a seven and a half week a honeymoon. We started off in Bora Bora and then we're in Anguilla and Harbor Island. And then we went to London and Dubai, Maldives. You've mentioned my two favorite. I'm actually going to Bora Bora this week. Um, I've been there a lot. So let, my two favorite places in the world are Bora Bora and the Maldives. Me too. They're so beautiful. It's paradise on earth. It's a commitment particularly the Maldives. I mean, it is, I think it might be the farthest, like if you, if you look at the globe, the single farthest place away from Los Angeles. It's definitely worth the trip. So, you know, I go way back with your family. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, Kim Richards was, and she still is, but like she was the shit. I mean, she was she was kind of had the market cornered on Disney, right? In the she and Jodie Foster, don't you think? Definitely, like iconic, so many amazing films. They were just going for it in those days. Escape to Witch Mountain, right? Watched that so many times as a kid. I loved it. Yeah. Um, what was it like living in the Waldorf Astoria as a young? You're, you basically were like the girl from the Plaza, except you were in the Waldorf Astoria, right? What's the name of the the famous? Eloise. Um, Eloise. Were you Eloise? Were you actually Eloise? My sister and I always used to joke and call ourselves that, but yes, it felt like being Eloise. And we loved living at the Waldorf. It's just such a beautiful hotel and so many exciting things are always happening. So we were always like sneaking downstairs to the ballroom and going to all these big events. And yeah, it was always very exciting at that hotel. Were you crawling around under the table during the, the black tie events and stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would have been doing. <laughs> we were walking around, getting all dressed up. You were uh, an actual debutante, yes? Yes. What is the process? What, walk me through it. It f- feels like another world to me. It's just a lot of like etiquette classes and dancing lessons. And then when we do like, the debutante ball in Paris at the Hotel Creon, that's when they have the guys come in and you have like your date and you do the dances together. So... You have to go to, there's not a big hoopla thing in New York City, or you do New York City and then you go to Paris. 
Um, yeah, I did both, but Paris is the big one. Were there any bad boys? You're like, oh yeah, okay, this guy just threw his tux on, but he wants to throw down. He's 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 not having any of this like cotillion crap. Like that must have been like the bad boy that everybody's like, yeah, he's the one. Yeah, there's always the bad boy in every single group, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would be a a, a, a fertile ground. So. I mean, you grew up in this this world, you know, with Lionel, R- Richie, and Michael. You were friends with Michael Jackson, right? Yeah, my mom and him grew up, so they were best friends since they're 13 years old. So I grew up with him my entire life, and he was just such a legend and so amazing and so kind and sweet. Did you ever go to Neverland? Yes, many times. I've been there post-Michael, and it, it's very different now. They've All, all, all of the... You know, the amusement park stuff, all, it's all gone. Oh, my God. That was iconic. I can't believe that they would take away all the rides. What ride was your favorite? I'm trying to remember. There was just so it was just kind of like this whole like fun felt like you're like almost in like a little Disney world. Well, the, the Disneyland train station he has is still there with the flowers and all of that. That's still there. The train track, but like none of the animals, none of the stuff. And what people don't realize about. Neverland, which is super interesting, is and I can't remember the name of the original owner, but he was a you know super rich, I think probably a billionaire, and he sent a team out throughout the United States, and money was no object, and they were supposed to report back with the single most beautiful property they could find. So they looked in Colorado and Montana and all over the place, and what came back was Neverland. So even before Michael bought it and turned it into what he bought it, it was it, it was a, a spectacular piece of, of land. And now who owns it? I want to say Ron Burkle owns it. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Did you go to the dance studio? That's still there. Oh, really? Okay, that's good that they kept that. Not only did they, they keep it, when you, but there's a, um, a circle in the middle of the floor that has been worn out by Michael doing his spins. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's really super cool to see. Um, and so when you made Simple Life, by the way, I love Simple Life. I think Simple Life is one of the great shows. It looks like you had fun in spite of it, right? It was so much fun. You know, I had no idea what I was getting myself into since this was like one of the first reality shows. Yeah. I had never been on camera before. I didn't really know what to expect. But I'm so happy that I did it with Nicole because we were best friends since we're two years old. And we just, I don't know, we just have fun no matter what we do or where we were. So it definitely made it, I'm so happy it was her that was with me along for that whole ride because it was just hilarious the whole time. There's no one funnier. I was just laughing the whole time. And we met a lot of really sweet and cool people and got to like go all over America. And it was awesome. What did you travel in? Did you actually travel in it? Like, how did they get you around the country? Well, the first season, we were just at one house in Arkansas. So we just had our pink pickup truck. And then for the other seasons, like we had another pink pickup truck that had like a little like trailer um, airstream attached to it uh, that I had to drive, which was pretty difficult. (laughs) You mean you didn't grow up driving in... uh an airstream trail <laughs> through through the streets of Manhattan. People, I don't think, realize making reality television 
I, I, I did a show with my sons where we chased uh, around supernatural tales. It was kind of like, I don't know, picture Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown meets Scooby-Doo <laughs> called The Low Files. And it was basically an excuse for me to hang out with my boys and like, you know, go up into the mountains and look for UFOs or whatever. It was super fun. But boy, you work hard. You work your ass off. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like it's easy, like, oh, there's no script. And they just throw the camera. I've never worked harder, never worked longer. Um, it's a totally different vibe. And that was one of the, as you say, the original reality shows. Yes. And, you know, back then it was, we were shooting 24 hours a day and they were very strict. Like they literally took away our phones. They didn't want us having any outside distractions. They told all of the crew members do not like talk back to them. So if we asked for something or tried to like communicate with them, they would just not say anything. So Nicole and I were like really on our own. It wasn't like we were stopping and they were telling us what to do. It was just all real. Holy smokes. Did you ever try to like blink in Morse code, get me out of here to like <laughs> second AD or the director of photography? Get me. There were some times where we were just like, oh my God, like we want to go home. There's We were just having FOMO of everything happening in LA and it's so boring sometimes and the dad gave us like a strict curfew and we were not into that so we would sneak out at night and there's there was no clubs hardly there was like these really random bars like cowboy bars and places that we went to um so yeah the, the nightlife out there was definitely uh not la uh no you have to I, you're definitely i would say the original influencer i mean i i, I think that like Ty Cobb says, it ain't bragging if you'd done it. You, I mean, you invented what is now um, just a accepted, baked into the DNA of our culture of an influencer. And it was, was Twitter even a thing yet? I don't think it was. Mm -mm. No. No iPhone, nothing. I had no publicist, no agent, no stylist. I... Literally, it was just being myself and going out and getting photographed. Anytime someone becomes an it person and there's always going to be an it person, I, I kind of think that if there isn't an it person, the machine will make one up because there has to be somebody. There has to be somebody who occupies the imagination of folks both in terms of like legitimate affection and interest and also what they call hate watching. And some people get more of the other, some people get more of this, some, people, some is just one or the other, but there's always going to be somebody there in that, in that moment. And, and you look back at the old school ones, like way before, you know, you or, you or I, like, um, uh, you know, Jane Birkin, they named a bag after her at Hermes or, um, Edie Sedgwick, who was the, uh, those are like m way more quaint versions of what it person has become. But you were there at the beginning of the modern version. Yes. The OG. <laughs> the OG. What do you think um, was the, why you, why then? Do you, have you ever tried to figure that out? I never really thought about it. I think that maybe there's just something magical about certain people that attracts that attention time and place and 
energy. Well, look, you have to have some sort of, um, there has to be something. It isn't, it can't, can't, doesn't just happen to anybody. But I also feel that there's that, that, that groundswell was there and you were there and it made sense. Did, did what was the it spot when I was in the eighties and doing my young trailblazing craziness, you'll laugh. Literally. I'm not kidding. You're right. Don't laugh. It, and I'm not really was the place, the hard rock cafe. Really? Really? L- really? That was like, oh yeah, we're going to meet at the hard rock cafe. And there was like the, the doorman and people lining up. And it, it's like what? looking back, looking back, it's like, it was, it was like, what step away from the fucking olive garden to meet at TGI Fridays. <laughs> but that's what it was. And what was it for, for you guys? It was like, and I kind of know some of the names cause my sons are a little bit, younger than you and the, so is it what were the big clubs that you went to and how were they different than my 80s experience well it was definitely not the hard rock um, <laughs> that for sure um it was different every single night like mondays was always at dublin's and tuesdays was at guys um when guys oh yes <laughs> um thursdays this place called pop um then it would just changed. LA is very like, like picky about places. Like a place will be hot for like a few months and then they renovate it and change the name again. So I've, I've seen a lot of clubs just, you know, come and go because things in this town just don't last that long. What makes a good club for you? If you could, well, you had, I'm, you're sitting in what used to be your own club in your own house. What makes a good club? What makes a bad club? Well, I don't go out anymore like I used to. I only will if I'm working, if I'm doing an event there or DJing or performing. Um, but other than that, I don't really enjoy it anymore. Um, but for a club to be good, it's definitely all about the crowd, the lighting, yeah. the music, the vibe, and... Yeah, just who's around you. I have a theory. Like, I go, why are clubs, whenever I get dragged to one now, why are these? It's not just that I'm older. It's not. They're different. And I'm trying to think of, like, why they're different. And here's my theory. My theory is that bottle service killed the clubs. It made the money. And it's it was a game changer economically. But the, the I just can't abide the sparkler magnum being brought through the people it's so gross to me and and it's it brought a level uh, a whole other level into where it used to just be dark and secretive and people from all walks of life could come in because it wasn't expensive so you could you could literally rub shoulders with anyone no one was saying pay x amount of money to sit at this table that stuff to me changed everything like and you know you're from new york that those clubs were really hardcore in the day it was like people from all walks of life i i don't think anybody was making any money really not even the the, the club owners um so god bless them for figuring out a way to make money but that um what, what a novel thought money killed the fun gee i wonder I wonder if that could be said about show business. <laughs> mm, I need to think about that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, 
definitely before all of that, like it was just about like you got in because you, especially in LA, it was like only people that they knew would get in and it would not be just like all the random people who could like pay just to be there. Yes. And then social media is what really killed it because we all used to be able to go out and it would be just amazing night. No one was bothering each other or taking photos or videos. And now as soon as you walk in, everybody has their iPhone up. They're all asking for selfies. Everyone's filming. No one's in the moment. Everyone's just like either staring at their phone to like, you know, put out a picture, edit a photo or they're filming the whole time. So no one's really in the moment anymore. They're all just too concerned about what's going to be on social media, which has just totally ruined the vibe. When your kids are old enough to get their phones, mm-hmm. their smartphones, do you have you figured out, or I mean, I'm, I'm way ahead of you. You just barely got married. But um, what would be your philosophy on it? My kids were just at an age where they we didn't have to deal with it. They were the last generation that did not grow up with the the smartphones. Do you, do you have a sense of when is too young for kids to be on Instagram and whatever? Yeah, I think it's just very toxic, especially for a young girl, you know, with all these beauty standards that are not even real. And then you have the trolls coming on and doing weird comments and then other weird people like trying to come in and do God knows what. So that's scary to me because, you know, I feel like it just keeps morphing into something and it keeps getting kind of worse. So I can't even imagine, you know, like whatever, 10, 15 years from now when I have a teenager, it's going to be. Yeah, just wait. Just wait till you're. I'm scared. My 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 brother Chad's got three girls under the age of thirteen, and one well, my old my my niece just turned thirteen, and so far she doesn't she can take it or leave it, but just wait because and what do you have teenagers? They're relentless. The, the the I've never felt more battered than I did with my than I had when I had my teenagers beating the living crap out of me to get what they want. I love my boys dearly, but holy sweet Jesus. When when Friday, starting Thursday, I would gear up for what I knew was coming on the weekends. And it was, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we, you, and you knew you were always getting lied to, for sure. Um, you, but you thought, of course, you were the one parent that your kids were going to be straight with you. They're never straight. That's part of being a parent. And, you know, and I know you're a huge, and I want to talk to you about this. You're a huge advocate in in this world. But, um, and then inevitably teens are, their job in life is to get in trouble so they learn. That's why they're there, to push boundaries so they can learn what works, what doesn't work, experiment with alcohol, experiment with drugs. So they learn that relationship so they can figure it out and you just hope they survive. And that's your job as a parent, as far as I can tell, is just to get them to survive um, or not make some sort of mistake that irreparably damages them or somebody else. And one of the ways people do it, as you know, and you've written about it and you're a huge advocate for it, is um, you know sending them away, whether it's camps or rehabs and like anywhere else, you know, there are good ones and there are bad ones, but, but your experience with that was super fascinating for me to read about because people don't think of the sort of underbelly of it that you are spending a lot of time talking about. What is, if you, you have a, did you 
create the phrase, the, the phrase troubled teen industry. Did you create that phrase? Explain it to me. I mean, I know what it is, but I'd like to hear it in your words. No, I did not create that term. It's actually a term that they created, uh, the people who um, have developed all these types of schools. And I think in a way, just to make the kids look like that so that they can get away with all the abuses that are happening at these schools, because there are thousands of them all around the country and actually around the world. And uh, people just have no idea what's happening behind closed doors. And uh, they come up with different names for the schools, like they call them emotional growth schools or behavioral modification or uh, wilderness therapy. There's just all different types of names for these places. Um, but it's just terrifying just to know what's happening and hundreds of children have died and there's 150,000 kids a year that are being put into these places and their families have no idea what's happening and it's just really terrifying and I just couldn't sleep well at night knowing that this was still happening and that's why I've been speaking up and using my voice to help put a stop to it. And you... At what age did your parents say, ah, oh, crazy parents? Basically, I can only imagine. You're going out, you're breaking curfew, you're doing what 80% of teens do, pushing your parents' buttons. They get worn down, which is what I was just referring to. And they and somebody says, you know what? There's a great place, XYZ, and the next thing you know, you're in Utah? Is that where you were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for my family, you know, before I lived in New York, I was living in Los Angeles, and then I moved to New York when I was 15, and in LA, I lived a very sheltered life. I wasn't allowed to go out. I wasn't allowed to go on a date. I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. My parents were so strict. So then when we moved to New York or at the Waldorf, all of a sudden I'm getting invited to all these parties and clubs and my parents were like, no way, you're staying home. And of course I didn't listen and I started sneaking out at night and getting bad grades. So they contacted this person called an educational consultant and they are the ones um, that recommended that I go to this boarding school. And they showed, you know, all this deceptive marketing, this, you know, beautiful website and these brochures with smiling kids and kids riding horses. But it's all stock photos and all fake. And these uh, consultants, um, I found out later now, they are ones that get paid off and get commissions for each kid that they send to these type of schools. So it's it's a huge business. It's a $23 billion a year industry. And uh, definitely it's something that has been around. It's been around since the 1960s and people have gotten away with it for so long. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, when you're in these places, they really instill that in you and physically beat that into your mind. Like no one will ever believe you if you say anything. People are going to think you're crazy. So they really put this like instill the shame in the kids where when you get out of there, you just don't even want to talk about it or think about it because it's just too traumatic and painful. And that's what happened to me. I literally couldn't speak about it or tell anyone for over 20 years. It is a, listen, it's a, it's so shocking to me to hear that that goes on. And it, it also, as somebody who's been in recovery myself, I've, um, you know, I know it's not the same as rehab, but they're not even, we're not even talking about the same thing, but there are similar, similar elements in that you're going someplace with blind faith. You're in a, you're in a, some, I would, a crisis and you're sort of a, you know, sort of throwing yourself on the mercy of the court of the people that are, are there to, in theory, give you therapy it, and parents are at their wits end. Like 
they're like any lifeboat at this point for the most part. So they're only as good as the information they're getting. What, what it, do you feel like the fix is for this? Well, definitely not sending your children to these types of places because children are literally being physically, emotionally, psychologically, and sexually abused. Um, and thank God now for the internet and people coming forward and telling their stories. So people, you know, now there are eyes on them, watching them. Um, but my advice to anyone would just be to talk to your kids and to keep them at home and um, and not send them somewhere because... I think when any child is going through something, if you're going to just put them somewhere and traumatize them more, they're going to come out with more issues than they came in with. And for me, I wasn't even a bad kid. Like, I literally just snuck out at night. And my parents just thought, okay, we'll just get her out of New York and just, you know, send her to Utah because she'll not be able to go out, basically. Um, right, yeah, yeah. And they would, ha in their you know wildest dreams or nightmares, like they would never would have imagined that all these horrible things were happening to me. And then, of course, the people who work at these places are trained to tell the parents, you know, your kid's going to say all these things. They're trying to manipulate you to get you out of here. So don't believe them. And um, that's easy for, you know, parents to assume that an adult who's supposed to be taking care of their kids is telling the truth but they're just manipulating the families and um it's really sad to see just so many people who've you know lost touch with their families or haven't spoken to them and that was the one of the most empowering parts of my documentary because i didn't i had no idea how people were going to react and when it came out i just had thousands and thousands of people reaching out to me just saying thank you so much for telling your story i went through the same thing i no one ever believed me my family didn't believe me and now, because of you, I'm finally speaking to my parents again. And also other parents reached out to me and said, I watched your documentary and I pulled my, my daughter out of Provo Canyon School and she told me everything and everything that you said happened to you is still happening there. And even on you know a crazier level, because now they're letting kids in as young as eight years old. And um, it's just so heartbreaking. What... Um your documentary came out two years ago. Am I right? Yes. Right. Where can, if, if people want to watch it, where's the best place to see it now, do you think? Netflix or where is it? I did this one with YouTube because I wanted it to be available to everyone around the world because not everybody has, you know, all these streaming services. So I just yep. wanted it to be available to everyone. So yeah, they can check it out. It's called This Is Paris on YouTube. On a lighter note, tell me about DJing. What, um, I feel like one of the times I did Ellen, you were the DJ, the house DJ. Yes. For a minute, right? Yes, I was. How are, are you enjoying it? It seems like you love it. And I know you're crushing it. I know you're traveling all over the world doing it. I love it. It's, it's so much fun. There's nothing like just being on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people and, just playing this, this amazing music and seeing everyone dance and jump and smile and sing. And it's just, it's really incredible. And I've been DJing now for 12 years and I love it. I love just having it as part of my life. And especially when I'm traveling for business, um, it's like the perfect thing to do at night just to entertain my fans and 
have a good time. You have only one song and you have to get people hyped. You have one song. What's the song? One of my favorite songs to play is Losing It by Fisher. He's like this Australian DJ and it's such a sick song. Like everybody always goes crazy when I play it. All right. I'm I'm checking that one out. We have it. Um, okay. This is a game. I wish we were live because I could, I would say, what is the, what is the amount, how, how many fragrances has Paris created? And I think it might be upwards of five. Am I right? I'm about to release my 30th fragrance. Wait, 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 wait. There aren't 30 fragrances in nature. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I have a humble one fragrance. Mm -hmm. One. And I will tell you, designing it, that's not the proper term, but was so much fun working with the nose. Did did you have, do you have as much fun doing it as I did? It was super educational and unbelievable. For those the uninitiated, there is a nose. The nose's job is to be a nose, and they they're like a bloodhound. They like they'll say so. What? It, tell me what you enjoy in life. And I remember going. Well, I love like being like picture like a summer night in a mountain, and the smell of like the like the the pines and like the dryness of the air and like lightning in the distance. And I'm like, great, be right back. And they literally come back with something you smell it and you are transported to that place is that the kind of experience you had yes since you know after doing 30 of them i'm definitely a pro at it and i've smelled like every single scent possible and it's just amazing how just mixing together certain notes can just transform into something you know so different each time so it's it's a lot of fun the whole process of putting together the scent and then creating the campaign and picking out the name and designing the bottle and the packaging and the f- I love it just the photo shoots it's it's all so much fun do you have um is there a shelf life on them like like if you buy it how long how long can one like sit assuming you don't go right through it before you're like is it like wine does it get better does it get worse I'm not sure. I think yeah. it's always good. I think it's depending on the quality, that's, maybe. <laughs> that's what I think, because I, I I, have been told that folks like, I was talking to Tom Ford about this, and he makes great stuff. And and he was like, I, I kind of like mixing sometimes the older versions. Like, hmm, that's kind of cool. I think, by the way, I think everybody has to be careful with the fragrance. It's like, the problem with wear it when, when you wear one all the time is you get numb to you don't sort of smell it anymore. So you keep adding and adding and adding. That's why you run into those people on the street. You're like, oh my God, they've just been wearing it for so long that they have to put that much on. Smell it, <laughs> right? Yeah. If someone doesn't have good taste in like cologne or a fragrance, it could be brutal because if they spray too much, it's just like overwhelming. And What are your favorite notes? Are you, are you woody? Earthy, citrus, floral. Do you have certain things you're like, absolutely no way? Or like, what's your kind of jam? I love floral. I love rose and gardenia. And then I love like sweet, like kind of like honeysuckle or vanilla. Um, Those are some of my favorites. 
That makes sense. That's very on brand for you. What's the new one? The new one, I can't say yet because it's a surprise, but it'll be coming out on my wedding anniversary, which is 11-11. And it has to do with love, but I can't say the name yet. Where will we be able to get it? Uh, It'll be all around the world um, at different department stores, especially Macy's and parishilton.com and other stores. I will be checking it out. I, but it, you don't, you've never done a unisex one, have you? I have like five men clones. Oh, Jesus. So I'll send it over to you. Okay. I want swag. You'll love it. The Paris Hilton for men in the blue bottle is literally like insane. The amount of people who come up to me on the street and guys just being like, that is my jam. I've been wearing it for like 15 years. That's all I will wear. And it's just how so many like girls will hit on them when they're wearing it. So it's like everybody loves that cologne. What are your feeling on the pheromone thing? I think it's great to have in there. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I would use yeah any anything you got. So do you do you have pheromones in some of yours? Yes, in some of them, definitely. They're good for date night. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> See, I never, I never. That was I. I don't. I don't. I feel like I never looked at or. Sampled the fair. Do they actually have a scent, or are they unscentable? Um, it depends on on which one it is, but yeah. Can you imagine? I picture like you smell it, and you turn into the American werewolf in London. You're like, I must have you. <laughs> Does it work that way? <laughs> it's sort of. <laughs> sort of. Yours does, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> You're, I know how busy you are that you probably don't need to fill the next five years. But <laughs> if you could do anything, what would what would you do with the next five years of your life? Well, now that I'm married, I can't wait to have a family. And something that's a huge focus for me is Web3 and the metaverse and everything that I'm doing in the NFT space. And... Um, yeah, that's something that is a huge focus for me is uplifting and empowering female artists. And I'm such an undercover nerd. I'm obsessed with anything to do with technology in the future. So um, that's something that I've really been focusing on now that I'm the queen of the metaverse. Yeah, tell me about your, your foray. into You have your own metaverse, right? Yes. Um, I created Paris World inside of Roblox and it's just been incredible. We did the first ever New Year's Eve party um, in the metaverse. And then I did New York Fashion Week in there. We just did the Neon Carnival from Coachella and had half a million people in there a few weeks ago. Um, so it's just been amazing just to bring my life into the virtual world. And it's exciting because I was planning and mapping myself out and uh, creating this metaverse uh, back in 2018 before there was even a word for it. So now just to see the advancements in technology and to see that everything is actually happening now today is just um, so like just fantastic. It's funny. I know a lot of, as I know you do, super smart people who um, everybody's making their own iteration of the metaverse and and all of the folks I talk to feel like Roblox are going to be the people. That's a great company. Super smart people. How did you get hooked up with them? Um, I'm working with DJ Ski and we were just talking about creating it and 
Roblox was the first place that we're doing it. And um, now I just signed a deal with Sandbox. Um, that's mm -hmm. where Snoop has his Snoop World. So I'm going to be developing Paris World inside of there and then taking it into other metaverses as well. And um, Super smart. I, um, I went to my first metaverse uh, from Meta. I did a charity uh, evening um, around the Super Bowl. And it's like once you, I mean, intellectually, you know, it's, of course, the future. I mean, why, why wouldn't it be? Once you do it for the first time, even as rudimentary as it is, and it's super rudimentary still, but even in its most, in the form that it's in now, which is early, 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 early stages, you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm in another world. I'm, this is real. I'm here. And yet I know I'm not here. And when you're done, when I took the Oculus off, I was like, I, I had that insane, we'll have to create a new term. It's not jet lag, but like the first people who traveled on a jet got off that jet and went, I feel weird. Yes. We, there needs to be a term for it because I was like, I was with all these people. Where are they? I was in this world and I'm just here in my, my, my living room alone. What the hell? I know. It's so fascinating. So fascinating. And then the, and the whole NFT, all of that, like there was a swag table that you could walk over and like, put on some glasses or wear a stupid hat. And and the people who don't think that we're not going to buy stuff for our digital avatars don't get it because you want to wear that stuff. You want to have your, exactly. you know, 100%. That's it's, and it's so funny to watch people talk it down. They, they just, they just don't get it. And I always think about this. I'm older than you. I remember, when Pong came out, literally, it was a line and a in a square. Not even, they couldn't even make a circle. They couldn't make circles. It was a square. They go beep, bump, beep, bump, and you played Pong. And we were obsessed with it. And you were like, you instantly knew this was a thing. You're like, this is so great. Now, now it's you know Call of Duty and whatever the hell we have now. What do you think the metaverse is going to look like in fifty years? Oh my God, it's it's we're so early right now and. It's moving so fast and I've seen even projects that I'm investing behind that haven't even been released yet. And it, yeah. it's just, it's really just, it blows my mind just how real these seem and feel and the new, you know, the add-ons that people are going to be doing where you can actually like feel things. It's just a... Yeah. What kind, have you tried any of the add-ons? Yeah. Um, I've tried them and it's, it's fun. Like, it feels really real. So it's kind of crazy especially if you do like a fighting game or something like that um it's pretty intense but it's super exciting to know and you know i'm just hoping for one day with my daughter that she'll want to just like instead of going to real clubs like i did when i was a teenager that she'll <laughs> want to party in the metaverse so i'm just uh getting it ready for little london hilton when we see her one day <laughs> yeah and you can keep her in the house yes with her headset on in the house safe <laughs> oh my god that's too it'll happen for sure mm -hmm. look the kids we're always going to want to be where, where it's cool to be yep and it's definitely going to be cool definitely already is well thank you for coming on the show this is was so great it was great to see you please um say hello to your parents for me please. i will definitely and and and, and your aunt's 
God bless them. I love them so much. I haven't seen them in forever. Yes, I'll tell them. My mom said to say hello. I told her that we were doing an interview together. Yeah, give her a big big hug and kiss for me, please. Definitely. All right, Paris. Thank you, guys. So good to see you. And thank you all so much. Super interesting. Right? Right? I mean, geez, the stuff about the troubled teen industry has got me, like, so shaken up. Yikes! Um, and on the other hand, super excited to go to Paris World. I think that'd be fun. All right, just one more thing before we end today's episode. Let's check the lowdown line. Hello, you've reached literally in our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hey, Rob. This is Stephanie Abe from Dallas, Texas. I have a couple of questions. One is the Oroville. I wanted to know about how the filming with that, how that was on the pilot. And um, if you're in, into sci-fi. And then the other thing is, since I'm from Texas, we are watching the 911 Lone Star show. And we do like it. I was wondering where you filmed the winter scenes from the beginning of the season. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Oh, thank you for calling. Um, so, uh, the Orville. Um, I'm a big Seth MacFarlane uh, friend, fan. Um, know him. I've done some stuff uh, on Family Guy over the years. He asked me to play uh, Derulio, the blue alien. And he called me and said, I'll send you the script. And in the very first scene, he is in bed with a girl, as you know, and he ejaculates out of his forehead. I was in after that. I, I didn't read anything else. I didn't read the rest of the script. I said, me playing a blue alien, ejaculating out of my forehead, I'm in. And it's, it's, it's funny, but it, it also, people always say, how do you keep yourself relevant? How do you keep a career going after so many years when other people don't that, that that's a very good example of how and why because there are plenty of people like what i'm an alien and i'm what well what are people that's great and i'm just like makes me laugh i'm in um i love sci-fi love it i'm bummed that i haven't done anything in sci-fi truly i would love it i would love to do you know aliens you know and a star wars thing look i was on the set of star wars i read about it in my my first book um, stories I only tell my friends. Um, I went to the, the, what was the original ILM industrial light and magic and, and, and watched them film the, uh, uh, death star trench, uh, fighter pilot sequence and, um, saw R2D2 and the Bantha all in the same, in, in the death star. And it, it had not come out. I had my, my aunt and uncle were working as rotoscopers. They used to call them. Um, and, uh, I remember going to my seventh grade class the next day and going, there's a movie coming out soon that is going to be so good called star Wars. I wish I would have invested in it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, um, my overlords at Disney who, who produce 911 Lone Star and now own all the star Wars stuff. will hear this and, and put me in that world. I would love that. And, um, the last part of your question, thank you for watching, um, 911 Lone Star. 
all of that snow blizzard, which I was super proud of, you know, we're not a movie, we're a TV show. So, you know, we have budgets we have to adhere to. We make a lot of them. It's like a factory. And I, and I take great pride that it looks like a movie every week. And that looked amazing. That blizzard stuff looks so real. It was shot in a hundred degree weather in Simi Valley in California. We had fake snow technology. We used um, a certain type of smoke to make it look white and foggy. And then they put, they they had a special makeup to put on my beard, which looks like ice, icicles on my beard. But man, it looks like we're in a blizzard. It was real movie making magic. Glad you liked it. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. This has been Literally. I am Rob Lowe. I will continue to be. Um, Don't forget to download the rest of our seasons and, and episodes, and I will see you next week. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced by me, Rob Schulte, with help from associate producer Sarah Begar. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Byrne. Our research is done by Alyssa Grawl. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. All of the music you hear is by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Stitcher.